From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to MP Pulse, AAMP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Underdiagnosis and undertreatment of osteopenia and osteoporosis are major health concerns in the United States. Over 14 million people in the U.S. have osteoporosis, and each year there will be 2 million fractures due to the disease. In 2018 alone, the estimated costs for osteoporotic fractures were $52 billion. For comparison, the cost of diabetes annually is around $327 billion. Osteoporosis is a silent yet very preventable disease. Unfortunately, patients who would benefit from screening are not being screened, and untreated patients suffer from avoidable complications. Up to 66% of vertebral fractures go undiagnosed, and there's an eight-fold increase in mortality after a vertebral fracture. The numbers are astounding, and NPs are uniquely positioned to change this trajectory. In this engaging episode, nurse practitioners Dr. Laurel Short and Dr. Christopher Hemmer discuss screening, diagnosing, and treating osteoporosis. They offer practical, evidence-based information on avoiding a misdiagnosis and tips for helping your patients understand the significance of the disease. So please help me welcome Laurel and Chris. Hi, everyone. Dr. Chris Hammer and I are so excited to be with you today on the NP Pulse podcast to discuss the topic of osteoporosis and bone health. Uh, we'll kind of do a, a warm-up here and introduce each other. So my name is Dr. Laurel Short. I'm a nurse practitioner in the Kansas City area. I'm with a private practice called Sunflower Medical. It's a family practice. And I have been a nurse practitioner since 2010. I worked for about 10 years in outpatient physical medicine and rehabilitation, and that's where I developed a a special interest and expertise in working with patients who have neuromuscular disorders, non-surgical orthopedic issues, and I worked with a lot of athletes and active folks um, and folks with osteoporosis. So very excited to be with you here today. Outside the office, I also have an interest in this topic as an endurance athlete, and I'm currently training for my second half Ironman race. So very glad to be here. Congratulations, Laurel. You uh, make me look pretty weak here because I haven't trained for anything as I'm a little older. Uh, I quit running when I was 16 and could drive. So uh, my name is uh, Dr. Christopher Hemmer. I'm a associate professor at St. Louis University School of Nursing. I also have a current practice in orthopedic spine for 23 years, and I moonlight in the emergency department here in St. Louis. A lot of my doctoral work and doctoral project was identification and management of compression fractures. I've also uh, written an article on identification of osteoporosis treatment gaps, which is kind of relevant to today's talk. I'm also an orthopedic uh, board certified orthopedic nurse practitioner, and uh, I've been working in this field for over 23 years. Uh, just had a passion for it. I enjoy bone health and uh, muscle skeletal diseases as uh, Laurel has spoken on. 
and uh, I'm happy to be here with my colleague and it's fun to kind of bounce some things off each other and just have a nice collegial discussion about uh, a topic which is near and dear to both of us and affects a lot, a lot of people as we're going to get into. Absolutely. And we really hope that today you can take away some new pearls and strategies to work with your patients talking about bone health. Certainly, this is not a new topic and you've been learning about it since your basic nursing education, but hopefully we can give you some new ways to think about it. And we really feel like this is such a great topic for advanced practice nurses because it's truly chronic disease management. It's a lot of self management techniques and patient education. And we do that so well as advanced practice nurses. So Chris, I'm wondering if you could start off by just kind of sharing where are we at with the statistics on osteoporosis and how does this disease impact our healthcare system in the United States? Yeah, great question. And that's always kind of the things I always talk to my students about is the who cares? Why do we care about this? What's the big deal? So just some numbers off the top of everyone's head here. When we talk about osteoporosis uh, affecting adults age 50 and older, 12.6% of the population is afflicted with this uh, preventable disease. Let's drive this home. It's preventable. To put that number into a little more perspective, we're talking about over 14.5 million patients roughly 12 million women and about 2 million men. So this is not isolated to just the ladies. And then you say, well, Hammer, what does all that mean? Let's drill it down, mine it down a little bit more. Roughly 43.1% of your patients are gonna have low bone density or premenopausal or osteopenia, whichever word you like to use. So when you're thinking about it, roughly over 43% of your patients are heading that way. And when we start looking at the silver tsunami, aging population, I think anybody can look at this and see we are really in a, a world of hurt if we don't start being more proactive and preventative with this problem. When we talk about healthcare dollars, everybody's budget-minded. Again, why do we care? What's the big deal? The cost of osteoporosis at this time and when I say at this time, the last numbers were, were uh, calculated roughly four years ago in 2018. We all know things have gotten just a little bit more expensive since then. Are $52 billion with a B, billion. When we take into account the silver tsunami and extrapolate that data out into 2040, we're looking at $95 billion dollars leading towards osteoporosis. And so, I mean, these numbers are staggering. So that's the that's part of the, okay, why do we care? Now, let's take it down to the exam room, you know, because we throw these numbers around and it really doesn't mean a lot to most people, present company included. So when we start talking about risk factors, the patient in the room, the family member in the room, let's start looking at that. When we talk about osteoporosis risk factors, when their bone density decreases by one and a half to two fold, their fracture risks skyrocket. So we start talking about uh, compression fractures. We say, ah, I've got a compression fracture and people, oh, that's normal. That's an old age thing. Once they have one fracture, they're at a three-fold increase for another fracture. If they've had two fractures, they're at a five-fold risk. And anything more than that, you pretty much tell them, look, you're gonna break again. It's just a matter of time. Now, let's put this even more perspective. We just talked about one, two, three, four, five fractures. Keep in mind that 66%, two thirds are undiagnosed. 
a lot of these patients will say, oh, my back hurts and the PCP or whoever's seen them says, ah, oh, you're old, you got arthritis, that's normal, that's part of aging, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, a lot of these fractures go undiagnosed. So, you know, these people are breaking, they're increasing the risk factors, they're increasing the cost to the healthcare system, they're decreasing their independence. And you can see how this problem becomes very, very cyclic. Um, there was a study not too long ago that talked about uh, for every thoracic fracture, you lose 10% of your FEV1. So if you bust a couple of fractures in your thoracic spine, all of a sudden your, your expiratory inspiratory volume is decreased precipitously. Um, you increase difficulties with uh, GI intake and the ability to eat. Well, if they don't eat, they become sarcopenic. And you can see this downward spiral. So this problem has a, a, a rippling effect. It's not just, oh, broken, fixed, move on. And that's how a lot of people look at this. And then uh, when we talk about fractures, this is the one that really, I think, hits patients and their families. When we talk about loss of independence, 60% will require assistance within that first year of the hip fracture. Over 40% will be unable to ambulate independently, losing their independence. Now this becomes a family issue. 33% uh, will end up in a nursing home. One out of three I mean, come on, if this number doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. And then mortality, I saved the best for last. 20%, one in five die after the first year of a hip fracture. This is huge. We see patients who were independent, go-getters, going to church, going to bingo, they break the hip, they're done. They get that, that's it, they're in trouble. And then we talk about an eight-fold increase in mortality after that first vertebral fracture. I know I just spewed a lot of numbers out. The point is what we want people to understand is that this problem has rippling effects, but there are ways to try to prevent this problem and decrease those numbers substantially. Well, and I, I really like, Chris, how you kind of came up with this term pre-osteoporosis. And I think our society and healthcare system has done a great job if we compare it to another condition of diabetes most of the average American, if you say pre-diabetes, they know what that means and they know that that's the time when they can turn things back and prevent diabetes from happening. So if as healthcare providers, we can start doing that with bone health as part of those comprehensive annual exams and saying, let's just make this part of the conversation before it becomes an issue. Because as you're talking, I'm thinking about multiple patients and even personal examples of when it's too late, right? So we've lived in our house for about six years. And when we first moved in, we had a really nice neighbor just a few doors down. She was, you know, had lived in the house basically her, for, you know, over, over 20 years at least and lived alone. And the summer after we moved in, she fell in her yard and nobody found her until the mailman came by and of course had broken the hip. And we know how the story goes. She never got to come back home to her house. And we can all think of stories like that. Um, and so just like we do with other chronic conditions, how can we be addressing this sooner rather than later? And so just I think another good talking point to use with patients is when does our bone health really peak, right? Because we start thinking about this at menopause. Well, let's let's change the perspective. Let's start talking about this, especially with our female patients when they are much younger. Let's talk about when they're teenagers and in their 20s because we peak at about age 18, but we maintain that through our 30s. 
So what if we could peak a little bit higher? Um, there's been some research to show that if you could peak about 10% higher at age 18, 20, and then maintain that, we could delay the onset of osteoporosis by 13 years. That's huge. Huge. Yeah. Yeah, that's massive. And, and you raise a good point that I want to touch on. When we talk about prevention and talking with patients, I think the big question becomes is who owns the bone? And I did not coin that phrase. That's from somebody else. That's from the National Osteoporosis Foundation. I actually did a very small study. I think my N was only like 270 patients, uh, but it was published. So I was happy about that because it helped me with tenure. But one of the things that I thought was very interesting, and the study was only in the Midwest, so it's not a national study, uh, is 50%, actually 50.74% of the patients reported that bone health was never addressed, never addressed. And so then the question was, well, who really owns the bone? Is it endocrinology? Well, not really, because they don't get it until it, until the ship has sailed. Uh, is it orthopedic surgery? No, our job's go in, fix it, move on. We could care less about that next fracture, uh, pun intended. Uh, is it women's health? No, I mean, they're doing 10 other things. And then God forbid the primary care. I mean, you poor people have a checklist of things from alpha to omega and bone health doesn't fit in that paradigm. So I guess that leads me to my question to you as the primary care person. You have a very small window of time to see these folks on annual exams. Patients come in with their laundry list. Dr. Laurel, I can't sleep. I, my kids are driving me crazy. I'm depressed. My stomach hurts. I have headaches. How the heck do you figure out to squeeze in osteoporosis when they could care less because it's a silent problem as you've talked about? Absolutely. So I think that the best way we can approach this is it doesn't have to be a separate 15, 20 minute conversation. So many of the things that we talk about with bone health just blend very nicely with the other preventive conversations we're having with patients. And it can be as simple as, in addition to preventing you know, heart disease and diabetes and keeping your lungs healthy, all of these healthy lifestyle habits we're talking about, guess what? They're also going to keep your musculoskeletal system strong. So when we talk about exercise, we know that doing weight-bearing things helps signal our bones to turn over. So the osteoblast and osteoclast activity work in, in um, synchrony to keep our bones strong and reminding patients that our bone is living tissue. It's constantly rebuilding, remodeling, just like our skin is. And in addition, patients might not be aware that when you keep your muscles strong, that's part of keeping the bone strong too. So they, they play off each other. So even just a simple talking point like that with patients, and then including when you're talking to them about exercise and healthy nutrition, that that is going to keep their musculoskeletal system healthy in addition to cardiovascular and other areas. Um, so just kind of blending it in and bringing in that talking point. Um, I'd like to go back to basics for just a minute and talk about what we do in the clinic at the annual exam. And this starts with vital signs. So really as basic as it gets. But let's take a few minutes and see how our medical assistants, our nurses, our staff are getting height measurements because not every staff that I've worked with is taking the time to have patients take their shoes off, get their heels up against the wall. Are they using good posture? What height is everyone going to tell you? They're going to tell you their height when they were their tallest and you have them pull out their driver's license and it's gonna have it on there. I don't, you know, my mom is in her upper 60s. Her driver's license probably still has her height when she was 25. 
I know she's not that tall because she used to be taller than me and now she's not. Um, and she's being treated for osteoporosis. So that ties in with the point you already brought up that so many of the vertebral compression fractures go undiagnosed. And so one of the risk factors we look for is has the patient lost height? So the numbers you wanna remember, if they've lost more than two centimeters of documented, so it's a patient you've been following for a while, look back five, six, um, eight years ago, have they lost two centimeters in height? Or we look at their tallest historical height. So if they verbally tell you, you know, I was five, 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 six, whatever their tallest height was, and now they're four centimeters or more shorter than that tallest historical height, that's gonna be a risk factor. So we wanna look at simple things like how are we getting height? Um, and then when I'm teaching on this with students or lecturing at conferences, I always like to bring up in physical exam things like looking at their posture. And especially if it's someone coming in with acute pain, to your point, they may already have some arthritis, but let's not assume that there might not be a new issue. And so bone pain is very sensitive to percussion. And if they're having kind of a quote flare, increase of pain, new pain, I always wanna include that as part of the physical exam. I just take my reflex hammer and percuss along the spine. If you find a point that's very acutely tender, one of your differential diagnoses needs to be a new onset compression fracture and they might not have fallen. So we have to remember that. Often an osteoporotic fracture happens with a fall from standing height or an impact that you would not expect a fracture from. But once these folks have weaker bones, they can fracture without knowing what happened, right? Um, and I know you see that all the time in, in orthopedics. Um, so those are some of the main things I think about in my physical exam. Another way to kind of multitask and is actually more efficient is I always ask students, when is the best time to observe ambulation and balance with a patient? The answer is when they know, when they don't know you're watching, right? Cause they're going to try to correct it. If you say, Hey, Mr. Smith, let me see you walk. They're really going to try to try to straighten up. Um, so probably my best recent example, I had a nurse practitioner student with me and a patient, older patient came in with a chief complaint of anxiety. Both the student and I observed that he was having a really hard time keeping his balance in the hallway. I mean, having to hold onto the walls was not using an assistive device. And so as part of our visit, we said, we know you're here for anxiety, but we'd really like to talk to you about your balance. We're worried about fall risk. This was on a Thursday or Friday. We got him set up with an outpatient physical therapist for Monday. Unfortunately, he fell in his home over the weekend and suffered a hip fracture that he's now had to recover from. So even when we really do our best, sometimes we're not gonna catch all of them, but hopefully those are some uh, pearls that you can take back to your practice. And, and I'd be curious from your standpoint, Chris, if there's other things that you do in, in clinic for this. Yeah, no, I think uh, one of the big ones, like you said, is in the basics is the height. And I think that gets missed all too many times. I mean, uh, it's easy when they came up, the patient comes in with pain because now they've got a driving motivator. They, they hurt. They want to know why. They want you to do something about it. Those are the easy ones. The ones that are not are the ones, again, preventatively speaking, or trying to prevent that second fracture, so to speak. One of the other things that uh, I wanted to touch on uh, that I think is uh, pretty important is when uh, when you're talking to patients, uh, obviously, 
you're looking for not only uh, physical findings, but just talking to them about, hey, past medical histories, and I know you guys do that stuff. And again, I, I just, my hat's off to you because boy, oh boy, all the things that can cause osteoporosis, which we can talk about a little later, secondary issues and chronic steroid use, and they, oh, I forgot about that. That's my lung pill, or oh, that's my uh, arthritis pill, or whatever. I mean, these things many times get uh, uh, lost in the shuffle because patients don't even think about it because they're not there for that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how many of these fractures go undiagnosed. And again, once they're diagnosed and treated, are never treated from a preventative standpoint. It's, hey, you broke your back, we fixed your back. Hey, your hip is broke, we fixed your hip. And then they get lost in the shuffle. One of the things that some of the larger organizations have talked about are fracture liaison services. Uh, I know the National Osteoporosis Foundation is big on this. Uh, there's actually courses to try to help get people to capture the fracture, so to speak. Uh, and these liaison services are, are set up just like you would with heart or uh, things like that, where you can't leave the hospital if you've had a heart attack without a baby aspirin, a beta blocker, a statin, et cetera. And the idea is, well, if you come in with a hip fracture, it triggers this uh, liaison program to where those patients have to be evaluated and hopefully try to reduce the number of people that have fractures or bounce back to the hospital with fractures down the road. Uh, again, you know, ideally we want to be proactive, but in those cases, we can be reactive to try to prevent second and tertiary fractures. So, Absolutely. And I think those fracture liaison services work so well in areas with bigger systems that can get that going. I know when I was working within a private orthopedic practice, we actually tried for multiple years to set something like that up. We tried to set up a system where any adult over age 50 with a fracture would get flagged. Um, but I'm, I'm sure you won't be surprised that when you're working within a smaller organization, it's just really hard to, to change how things have been done for a long time. So what I would encourage the folks listening, if you work in primary care, just make it part of your practice. Any adult over age 50 that's had a fracture, you see that ortho note come through, you see an ER note come through, make sure you're getting them in for follow-up. And you don't have to get a DEXA off the bat, uh, which we're going to, I think, talk about next. But you can just do this risk factor checklist. They're easy to find online. You can get a FRAC score. And then you can determine if this is a patient, you know, if they fell on the ice and it was a big impact, that may not be considered a low impact fracture. But your, your basic thing to remember is adults over age 50 who've had a fracture need to be screened. Um, so I think that kind of leads into discussion about DEXA. Often when I'm presenting about osteoporosis, I'll kind of poll the audience. What's the first thing you think of with osteoporosis? And everyone says, DEXA. Okay, so it is, you know, the only objective measurement we have to this point. Um, so I'd be curious if you could talk about when do we start ordering DEXAs? Who needs them? How do we interpret them? You know, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great point. I think it's a good lead in. So when we talk about screening recommendations, and I say we, World Health Organization, National Osteoporosis Foundation, these are pretty well hardcore guidelines. Uh, these aren't off the cuff. You know, so many times we see things where, well, this organization says that and this foundation says that. I think most of us will agree on the following. 
assessing osteoporosis risk factors in postmenopausal women 50 years of age and older. So just because they're 50 and haven't broken anything, what are the risk factors? As you pointed out very astutely, how tall are they? Evaluating for kyphosis, percussion, uh, what are their fall risk? Uh, you know, a lot of times they don't think about, oh, I rolled my ankle and I broke my foot, I was just clumsy. Well, wait a minute, let's talk about that. That was a low mechanism of trauma. You shouldn't break your ankle or your foot because you twisted it. Um, so uh, men age 50 and over, same thing. Low velocity traumas, as you said correctly, they fall off a roof and break something. We're not counting that. You know, that's just, well, that's part of trauma. Uh, but these low mechanisms are, are some of these red flags. And then in the uh, folks with uh, that are get a little bit older, we start talking about routine evaluation in women 65 years of age and older. Men, it's a little older, 70 and older because of testosterone. I mean, let's let's call it what it is. Guys have testosterone. We continue to make testosterone, so we got a little bit more bone protection than women. You know, women they quit making estrogen. Let's say 50 ish. Uh, and if they had surgical menopause or other things, it might be earlier than that. And as you pointed out very correctly, the longer you have that estrogen protection, the more bone protection you can have down the road. So some of these folks have, uh, if they have premature menopause or surgical menopause, they're going to be at higher risk. So these are some of the things. And then people age 50 and older with elevated risk factors or an age greater than 50 years of age uh, induced uh, adult fracture, as we talked about. So, I mean, those are pretty staunch guidelines to, to go off of, and that'll keep you out of trouble when you're ordering DEXs from an insurance perspective and things like that. The other thing I want to touch on is when we talk about DEXAs, you know, a lot of times people just like, ah, just go wherever and get your DEXA. It's not like an x-ray. Um, there can be substantial differences from one bone density to the next based on where it was done, the type of imaging was used, did they get the wrist at one place, did they get the low back at another, did they get a hip. Um, when patients have had previous surgery, that can substantially affect it. And you say, well, no kidding, Chris, if they did a DEXA on my hip and I have a total hip, it's going to be really good. Exactly. Let me give you a less obvious answer. If a patient has a laminectomy, where we remove part of the posterior aspect of the spine and they shoot a DEXA in that level, they're not gonna see hardware. They're gonna get this report that says, oh my goodness, you have horrible bone because there is no bone, we removed it, right? So they may get this false uh, uh, low T-score screaming osteoporosis. So, you know, it's really important that the people doing the bone densities are, are doing these things on a daily basis. Positioning of the hip is hugely important. If that hip is internally externally rotated to any degree from one study to the next, you're gonna get a, an erroneous number. And it could be, oh my God, you're on this medicine, you're doing so much better. And it's like, wait a minute, this is way off. Or, oh my gosh, you were great last year and two years later, you're terrible. You know, when we start seeing outliers like that, we really have to go back and look, hey, was this is this apples to apples comparison? And if it's not, we got junk data. So it's not worth it. So if we can use the same place and same technique and places that are certified and, and those things are really, really important. And I think it's, you know, if you can get a place that you know is good at doing this and use them routinely and keep it in that repertoire, you're going to do better than, oh, one day we're going to send it to this place. Ah, the next day we're sending it to the outpatient center and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's just my little spiel. Well, I was just going to ask, what what do, what happens when someone has arthritis in their lumbar spine? How does that affect the T-score? 
Great question. And, and so let's think about our population. Our population is over 50 and, and historically probably going to be 60 or 70 years old. Well, guess what? Those patients have substantial osteoarthritis. Those people have substantial degenerative disc disease. So what do we see? Osteophyte formation, thickening of cortical bone. And all of those things are going to give erroneous numbers to make someone think, oh my gosh, I'm in great shape. I don't need to take this, et cetera, et cetera. And in reality, they've got a horrible back and they've got a falsely elevated number. So those things have to be looked at. Fortunately, a lot of the bone densities now look at L1 through L5. And so if we see this grossly elevated number, say at L4-5, and we see this horrible degenerative disc, a lot of times we're going to try to throw that number out and then look at the numbers that are more in sync with one another when, when calculating or looking at, uh, at T-scores. And fortunately, good radiologists know that. So that's kind of nice. Uh, and sometimes they'll even put a little caveat in there about, hey, we're a little concerned about this because of da-da-da-da-da. So, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, so on one hand, we could see a horribly bad number if a person's had a previous laminectomy and there's no hardware in that. So the average tech doesn't look at that and go, oh, you had a laminectomy at L3-4, so we better not use that level, right? Uh, or if one place says, oh, I'm busy, I'm just going to do the risk because it's a lot quicker or these calcaneus and some of these other places where this, it's just not, it just doesn't hold water. I mean, we know that the hip and the lumbar spine are the best two places when applicable. And then we deviate from that only when we really have to because in places of surgery or, or gross abnormalities or bad scoliosis, all of those kind of things can, can alter that bone density substantially. Being in the primary care setting, what I like to do with my patients is when they get the DEXA report back, usually the patient gets a copy and I get a copy. I at least like to call them and go over it with them on the phone, even if their numbers seem like they're you know, in, in pretty good range, which means obviously if it's above negative 2.5, then it's not considered osteoporosis for most patients. We have some exceptions. So if they're between negative one and negative 2.5, we call that low bone mass or osteopenia. But the reason I like to go over this with patients is I like to tell them this is one measure of your bone quality, right? Now you're going to surgery, Chris, and other folks are going to surgery. You can sometimes actually see the bone and see what it looks like, but but most patients are not having that done, at least on a routine um, or common basis. And so I like to tell them this is one measure of your bone density, but we want to look at this comprehensively. And that's where we get back to our, our list of risk factors, modifiable, non-modifiable, same as we do for all chronic conditions, uh, looking at something like a FRAC score, uh, which is freely available to use with your patients. And, um, and we wanna use all that information to make a decision about what kind of treatment they may need for their bone health. So let's just use a, a good example of someone who's had a, a T-score of negative 1.2, but they've had a low impact fracture. And a newer healthcare provider may be wondering, hey, is that someone who needs to have treatment for their bone health? If it's a low impact fracture over age 50, the answer is yes. So all you need to remember is fracture trumps T-score any day of the week. And insurance recognizes that, our guidelines recognize that, and we need to be keeping that in mind. And a patient may ask you, but my number looks okay. And that's where we have to educate them. This is just one measure of your bone quality, but the fact that you've had this low impact fracture, that tells us that there's something about your bone quality that's making it not as strong as it should. And here's a patient population we really want you to be thinking about, your diabetic patients. 
Diabetic patients can have normal T-scores and still be at higher risk for fracture. So just like long-term hyperglycemia affects the nervous system, um, it affects the eyes, it affects the kidneys, it affects everything. Um, it also affects our musculoskeletal system and folks with diabetes are at higher risk for osteoporosis. So add that to your little list of things to talk about with your diabetic patients, but one more good reason to have them exercising, smoking cessation, all the things that we know are, are gonna keep them healthy. So just wanna put that out there that, you know, take a few minutes to follow up with your patients when they get those DEXAs and that's gonna lead us into um, talking about treatment for osteoporosis. Yeah, and the other thing I wanna add, which I think you the, the whole point of fracture trumps T-score is huge. If you guys don't get anything out of our talk today, our, our bantering back and forth, take that. And one of the things that I've used as an analogy is, if a patient uh, has a heart, I go back to the heart because everybody knows heart disease. Uh, if a patient's had a heart attack, and they go and they get their cholesterol checked and their cholesterol is normal, I will bet you a lot of money they're still on a statin. But my cholesterol is okay. They're still on a statin, right? So we go back to this treat the patient, not the picture, not the number kind of mentality. So, you know, again, I, I can't say it enough. You said it eloquently. Uh, fracture trumps numbers. Treat the patient, not the scores. Laurel, you made some good points earlier about uh, treatment and medications, and certainly in primary care, you do more of this or certainly probably as much of this or more than I do. And I've read some places and listened to some uh, issues where they're talking about these medications aren't being filled like they used to be and that there's a decrease in these uh, prescriptions being written and, and utilized. Why do you think that is? I mean, if, if we're touting and blowing this horn of osteoporosis prevention, why are we having people not fill scripts? And, and to that point, what do you think about different treatment options for this? Or what's some of the latest and greatest that, that you're coming across? I think it's multifactorial, uh, like a, a lot of things. Um, part of it is this is silent condition, as we've already said. So it's hard to take a medication that you're not feeling symptoms of. A lot of patients don't like to be on medications if, if they don't need to be. So it's up to us to educate patients on risk and benefit. Also, I think there's a lot of concern, and hopefully this is improving, but in, in recent years, there's been a lot of concern about these possible serious side effects with bisphosphonates. So I think we should talk about that a little bit. But just to kind of review the, the two categories that we have when it comes to osteoporosis medications, we have anti-resorptive medications and we have anabolic medications. The anabolic medications have now been around for a while. Um, I find myself still saying, oh, they're new, but they're not that new. They've been around for a while now. Um, but bisphosphonates, um, you know, just interesting historical point, clinical relevance was discovered back in the 60s. But it wasn't until it, it takes time to make medication, of course. So uh, that was kind of the, the bench part of it, bench science. And then in the 90s, that's when the World Health Organization established the official diagnosis of osteoporosis using DEXIC technology. So that's when we started seeing medication treatment with bisphosphonate. So Alendronate was the first one to market in 1995. I haven't looked up lately, but I would assume it's still the most commonly used. That's the one that I tend to use the most still. Um, so bisphosphonates, uh, most people know that we are recommended to do a drug holiday after three to five years because we don't have data that shows the benefit outweighs risk after that amount of time. But we have a lot of great data 
for treating patients who have not fractured, who are in those earlier phases of osteoporosis with bisphosphonates to reduce risk of fracture. And that's what we wanna really be taking as our messaging to patients. We want to reduce your risk of fracture so we can optimize your function, mobility, quality of life, activity tolerance, all those things. Uh, but the, the concern is when you get a few bad outcomes, that's what gets out in the media, right? And um, so I, I know you've done a lot of work on this. So I'd, be, I'd be curious your thoughts and how do you explain it to patients, that risk benefit analysis? What are some visuals you use, things like that? Right. No, I think that's a great question. And as we talked about earlier, you know, we can spew numbers all day long and patients don't quite get that. You know, they don't understand that, hey, this number, this, this number, that. So I try to put things into perspective. I'm in the Midwest. We're simple people. We're in a show me state. Show me the proof, Chris. Show me what's going on. One of the things that uh, I have used in the past, there's actually a website uh, at www.healthdecision.org backslash tool hashtag. And uh, that's a mouthful, but I think if you Google in health decision, you'll get it. And that is a really neat uh, website that's free. And what it has is some really neat pictorials. And so it actually puts into visualization these little people across the top of the screen. And it can highlight, you know, when you put in your calculations, say for frac, since we're talking about bone, it can show how many patients will actually have the problem, i.e. fracture, versus how many people prevented the fracture. So you can see this swath of people that were prevented having an injury versus the couple that had some very rare outcome, whether it be ONJ, atypical uh, femur fractures, things like that. I was at a talk once where uh, uh, Dr. Deemer, who is one of the big docs at Washington University Bone Health Clinic, and she said, you know, your risk of getting ONJ is less than getting struck by lightning twice out in the out in one of the national parks out west. And it really hit me. I'm like, wow. I mean, this is, you know, when you start talking about those kind of numbers, it's like that that rings home more to me than all these quadrillion, billion, trillions, et cetera, because we don't know what the hell all that means. But when you start putting it in perspective like that, like, wow, I'm more likely to get lightning twice before I'm going to get this problem. I think that's a pretty fair shake. Uh, another one I saw where your risk of getting mugged and drugged by a car and hit by a meteorite, et cetera, et cetera, were far greater than getting some of these problems. So I think when you start putting it into realistic, down to earth, in the trenches, people terms, people get it. We're really smart. We talk about these uh, statistics and studies and all that stuff. But in the room, in that exam room, the patient just wants to know, hey, man, am I going to have a problem with this? And show me how I am or how I'm not. Rarely do I get people whipping out the PI and wanting to go through every nook and cranny on it. I don't know about you, but that's how the people are on my side of the state. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, now hopefully more people are, are hearing that the benefit outweighs the risk for a vast majority of time when we're talking about bisphosphonates. Um, and, and they're still the most accessible because they are generic now, they're less expensive, you know, well covered by insurance. Um, we have little evidence that you need to discontinue bisphosphonates prior to dental work. And I think the dental associations have um, have come around on that now. I actually just about a week ago had a, a retired dentist who was in for an annual exam and her DEXA K2 
came back in the, the osteoporosis range. She's never had a fracture. So we kind of talked through and I thought, I am not sure how this conversation is going to go, if she's going to be okay with doing a bisphosphonate, but she had no issues doing a bisphosphonate. And that was the best option for her because um, she's otherwise really healthy and um, has not had prior fractures. So um, ho hopefully folks aren't having as much pushback currently. Yeah, I agree with you. The dental societies went from one end when ONJ and things like that popped up. It was like, oh my gosh, what's happening to now a very centrist position where, okay, let's look at it. Is this person really at risk? You know, are they having a big surgery coming up? That might be something worth talking about, but I agree. I, I've seen the same thing and the dentists in our community are the same way. And in fact, I think they're starting to be a lot more proactive than, than resistant um, the other thing I wanted to touch on, when, when you talk about these folks being on bisphosphonates or anabolic medicines and things like that, does that mean they just quit everything? I mean, do they say, ah, uh, Dr. Laurel, she gave me the script to cure all my bone woes, uh, that's it. Or, or do they got to keep doing other things? I mean, what are your thoughts? What do you tell your people? That's such a great point because I have had patients in when I was earlier to practice uh, realizing that patients sometimes thought when we were giving up them a prescription medication that that was going to be in lieu of doing supplements like calcium and vitamin D. So we always want to remember to remind our patients that when we're giving them a prescription, whether that is an anti-resorptive or an anabolic agent, that is uh, building uh, with uh, the foundation of self-management techniques, behavioral things, um, and certainly good calcium and vitamin D intake. Uh, speaking of things in the media, I think there's been some uh, question or even a little bit of controversy about calcium levels and cardiovascular risk, but the guidelines have not changed. We still want our patients getting at least a thousand milligrams per day of calcium. And then uh, as they get a little bit older, 1200 milligrams per day. So we're certainly not doing, you know, extra high doses or anything like that, but your thousand to 1200 milligrams per day is very safe. Most folks get six to 700 milligrams in their diet. If they're not sure what they're getting, I'll have them track for a few days to figure out, okay, just between your food and maybe a small amount of supplementation, we can get up to that 1,000 to 1,200. And then when it comes to vitamin D, I know we're both in the Midwest, so we're checking vitamin D on a lot of our patients, um, even the younger patients see a lot of low vitamin D. If they are deficient, I'll usually do the prescription strength once a week for 12 weeks to get them back up in that normal range and then have them just do a thousand units per day to keep them in normal range. So I'm, I'm looking at those things with younger patients as well as older patients, but certainly when it comes to, to bone health and when it comes to exercise, it's really, what do they like to do, right? Because even our low impact things like swimming and cycling, that's keeping your muscles strong. Um, so even the non-weight bearing things are excellent for our musculoskeletal health. Ideally, they're getting a little bit of both, you know, weight bearing and non-weight bearing, but we want what they're going to stick with. And what's the other great talking point with exercise? It's balance. So we want to encourage our patients when you exercise, you have better balance. And so you trip on that curb or that track crack in the sidewalk and you're less likely to fall. If you don't fall, you're much less likely to fracture, even if um, you have some osteopenia or osteoporosis. So I think it'd be good to take a few minutes to touch on the other medication options. Could you kind of go through um, the other anti-resorptive and then we can spend a few minutes reviewing the anabolic for folks too? Sure. Uh, the big ones that uh, 
that Denosinov, I think, tends to be one of the biggies. Uh, and, and that's a nice one when the folks uh, just have trouble with GI issues. Uh, we talk about bariatric surgery. People have ulcers. Uh, you know, the whole intolerance to sitting, because we all know that the, the typical bisphosphonates, you know, you have to take with a 30 uh, uh, glass of water, wait 30 minutes. You have to be upright. And some of these folks just don't like to do that. One of the benefits with Denosinov, uh, you know, it's, it's every six months. It, you, it's a sub-Q injection. It can be done in the office. It's a pre-filled syringe. It's a wham-bam, thank you, have a nice day. Patients tolerate it well. Um, there's also uh, the option of getting IVs, Lendorate. Uh, there are some folks that like that. Again, avoiding the GI issue. And just the simplicity. Uh, you know, the, the nice thing is, hey, it's once a year. I get it done and I don't have to think about it again. Um, those things are nice. However, the one caveat is we got to make sure that they're followed because, as you know, some of these folks, if they, they forget about it, you know, it's, oh, yeah, I forgot. It's been six months and I missed that shot. Oh, it snowed, so I didn't come in. Oh, COVID kept me from coming in. We've seen all of these things. The problem with some of those medicines, if we miss them, boy, their bone health deteriorates quickly because, as you know, uh, they don't have any protection. So, I mean, each one kind of has its pros and cons. And as you alluded to earlier, I think we really have to individualize treatment based on those patients. Um, do we have a patient who absolutely hates taking pills or has GI problems? Maybe those other options are better choices. Uh, do we have somebody who says, no, I'm regimented. This is my pill bottle. I'll take it once a week. And, you know, those things are great. And then, of course, the almighty insurance company plays into this as well. You know, you and I both know there are certain times where we really think this is the best thing. However, it's just cost prohibitive. So I, I you know, I'm kind of the school of I'd rather do something than nothing. So as you pointed out eloquently prior to this, we really got to look at the big picture. What what is this person's scenario? What is their, you know, are they compliant? I mean, there's a lot of things that go into this, as, as you know. Yeah, um, absolutely. And um Another category that I get asked about sometimes is hormone therapy. So I'd like to just briefly mention that hormone therapy, we have an abundance of evidence that it helps keep bones strong, but it's not first line for osteoporosis. So if you have a patient who's working with their OBGYN or that's some, something you're comfortable prescribing in primary care, um, that can have a side benefit to keeping their bones strong. But the primary reason for prescribing it is for the perimenopausal symptoms um, and it's, it's typically used on the more short-term basis. So we did want to just mention that. Um, and then our newer options, which again, have been around for a little while now, are the anabolic medications. And we have you know, two things within that. We have abaloperatide and teriparatide. Those are the medications that are daily subcutaneous injection, and they work on the osteoblast side of the equation, so the bone building cells. So it actually makes the bones thicker and stronger. Um, really quite impressive how much it can increase bone density and bone quality over the course of 18 to 24 months. But 18 to 24 months of a daily injection, compliance can be a real challenge with this medication. So if you have a patient who has fractured or is at high risk for osteoporosis, this could be a fantastic medication for them, uh, but you really wanna follow them closely so that you can make sure that they're staying on track with it. Often this is a medication that you'll see patients starting after they've had a fracture because that's when they kind of have that wake up call of, oh my gosh, like this really interfered with my life and I don't want it to happen again. So 
These medications really have a great place, but unfortunately they're likely underutilized due to the cost and due to compliance challenges. Isn't there, I was reading about some new one, uh, Romo something or another. What, what is that all about? I, you know, of course the, the anabolics have been around for the last couple of years and, and were really pushed, but this, this new thing, what, what the heck is that all about? Romosozumab. Quite a, quite a mouthful ah, to say that. Can five you say times that fast. three times fast? <laughs> <laughs> so this is. I just say is, Romo, so I stay out of trouble. <laughs> oh my goodness! So um, Romosozumab is another monoclonal antibody, and this is also on the anabolic side. You may have heard some things about this in the last few years. So this medication works on sclerostin, and um, it was kind of found incidentally because it was found that um, folks there's a genetic, uh, familial genetic thing that can happen where people naturally have uh, more or less sclerostin and that can really affect their, their bone strength. And so it was that kind of observation about this genetic um, predisposition that kind of led to research on, well, what happens if we inhibit sclerostin because we realize that people who have less sclerostin, have really strong bones. Long story short, medication was finally developed that inhibits sclerostin. And so this actually works on both sides of the equation. It um, slows down the osteoclast activity. So you're having less turnover and it actually encourages more osteoblast activity or more bone formation. So this is a once a month injection. It's given in the office. So you really need to be with the office that has a structure for getting prior authorization. Um, and it's an expensive medication, so you want to make sure it's authorized before you use it with the patient um, from a financial standpoint. This is not FDA approved for men in the United States at this point, so this is for women only who are at high risk for fracture or who have already fractured. And just like you were talking about with denosumab, once they're done with the year treatment, they have to follow it up with something else. Um, so in my opinion, this is a really good option for patients who are um, at high risk or who have already fractured because I feel like compliance could be a little bit better coming to that once a month office visit, but we need to follow it up with something else. And then um, the other key point that you want to remember with remosozumab is if they have had a heart attack or a stroke within the past year, they're not a candidate due to some cardiovascular risks seen in the clinical trials. My personal practice, even if it's been more than a year, I would consult with their cardiologist to make sure that they are safe to take this medication. Um, so are, are you using remosozumab and, and some of the anabolics in your practice, Chris? Yeah, I, I was a, a big advocate of the anabolics prior to the days of Romo. Um, my problem was that, as you point out very correctly it's very very expensive and it was hard to get um and it was delayed very significantly i think it was ready to be launched and then they had some cardiovascular concerns it got pushed back a year then it was on limited use and again a lot of that was cost so uh, uh i've used a lot of teriparatide in my practice uh as you said it's a it's a sub q injection i will tell you that folks will do fine with it they're a little scared when they hear injection, but when you hand them the pen and walk them through it, they look at you with this bewildered look of that's it. And it's like, they got it. And it's very easy because it's an auto loader. They pull a button, a pull a plunger, put it against their belly and push a plunger. That's it. 
I mean, there, there's no drawing up. There's no nothing. So I've had 80 and 85 year old patients that did it and were like, oh my gosh, this is, this is nothing. I didn't even feel it because, you know, when you start talking about needles and pens, they get worried. Oh my gosh, is it going to hurt? And how am I going to see the medicine? And it's like, no, 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 no. This is stupid simple. So patients tend to do very, very well with it. Uh, I, so to answer your question, a lot more with the anabolics than I have with Romo, but I'm excited about it. I think it's got some good data. It really, as you said, it really, it hits both osteoclastic and osteoblastic activity. Whereas most of our other choices, we got to pick, Hey, what am I doing? Am I preventing or am I building? And, and that's a hard call sometimes when you look at the big picture. Yeah. And, and hopefully in, in the coming years, we're going to see more options because really the list is pretty short for osteoporosis when you compare it to other diseases like hypertension and, and diabetes. So um, I think the more we can make it kind of normalize with patients that this is uh, a very common condition. We know it's a common condition. And again, just getting back to that idea of, of prevention. So we've covered a lot about you know, the problem of osteoporosis and some treatment options. And kind of before we wrap up, I, I really like to touch on some underlying causes that we both think about and um, labs that we might order and when we refer to specialists. So what are some of the things that you really try to keep in mind, especially if you're seeing a younger patient that's, hey, this, this might not be primary, there could be an underlying cause that's affecting their bone strength. Right. No, it's a great question. So, you know, every time we talk about osteoporosis, everybody thinks, okay, old person. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Okay, that's great. We've talked about that. That's kind of the, the bull in the china cabinet. We know it's there. But let's talk about some of the secondary causes of osteoporosis. Hypogonadism, athletic amenorrhea, which I know you're an expert in. I want to pick your brain on that in a minute. Folks with eating disorders, uh, people with surgical menopause or premature menopause, as I alluded to, you know, we see some of these folks that, oh, uh, they had a hysterectomy at, at 30. All of a sudden, they were robbed of 20 years of estrogen protection. That's a big, big concern. Folks with Cushing syndrome and other endocrine disorders, diabetes is rampant. Uh, you know, we know that that can cause problems. Uh, obviously, obesity, you know, the picture we all get in our head is this uh, frail, small, little petite thing. And oh, my goodness, they're going to break a bone. Well, I've seen some heavy folks that have osteopenia and osteoporosis, you know, even disuse from that perspective. With the society that we see, a lot of obesity, we're seeing more and more bariatric surgeries, absorption disorders, celiac disease, IBD, hematological things like malignancies. A lot of those medications can lead to, uh, to problems. Uh, hemophilia, sickle cells, less so, but still issues to be thinking about. The other big one, rheumatological. I mean, goodness gracious, when we start talking about the folks with RA and ankylosing spondylitis and the medicines that we have to use to treat those problems. And we also talk about a lot with neurologic conditions. You say, well, wait a minute, how does that affect it? As you alluded to earlier, fall, balance, uh, people with heart, uh, Parkinson's disease, prior strokes. And then from the medication list, you know, there's, there's certainly, we talk about some of these folks that are on PPIs and SSRIs. And yeah, there's some, some association with that. I do not want to imply that every patient with a PPI or SSRI is osteoporotic. Just not true. 
But when you start thinking about some of the cancer medications and the glucocorticosteroids, your ears better be perking up because those are the ones that are get you in trouble. And then one of the last ones, uh, as I talked a little bit about earlier, malnutrition and eating disorders. And as you touched on so uh, nicely earlier is, is this importance of, of good nutrition. And so I guess that brings me in one of the questions I I want to post to you because I've listened to you talk in the past. I know that you're an athlete. I know that you take care of a lot of these patients. So how do you how do you look at this patient that comes in that says, hey, you know, uh, Dr. Laurel, you know, I'm running this triathlon. Uh, I think I'm doing okay. I mean, is this patient at risk? I mean, they're doing everything right. They're they're exercising. They're doing weight bearing exercises. So how does that patient fit into your profile? The reason I wanted to make sure we touched on this is there's increasing awareness, but I, I know it's still under-recognized that we need to make sure our athletic patients are fueling themselves appropriately for their activity level. And I have personal experience with this as well. I was you know, a teenager and in college at a time where really everything out there in the fitness magazines and the fitness world was eating low fat and really counting your calories. And it was very common, and I personally experienced this, to stop getting a period when you're exercising at a heavier amount. And it was just considered kind of a, a normal finding and, and not really thought much of it. Um, and so what I'd like to emphasize is not everyone who gets amenorrhea as an athlete has a full-blown eating disorder. Um, it is kind of a spectrum, and we use the term disordered eating now. We also talk about just underfueling or undernourishing ourselves. And certainly we wanna be screening these types of patients um, to make sure they don't have a serious eating disorder that needs more intensive treatment. But often they just need awareness of, hey, if you wanna be the strongest athlete possible, let's give you the resources to support you in that, getting you to a good registered dietitian and or a coach or a counselor to help you kind of work through these things. And having your period is actually a sign that you're you're really healthy and fueling yourself appropriately. So just to give an example, I have a patient that I've worked with for many years and I was working with her at my specialty clinic. And then when I moved to family practice um, just a year ago, she came over to follow me for primary care, came in for her pap smear. And it turns out she hasn't had a menstrual cycle in multiple years. Um, and it, she does not have an eating disorder, uh, but she's a runner. And it turns out she's just not having enough healthy fat in her in her diet. Um, but this is a patient who should not already be through menopause. She's she's on the younger end of things. Um, and there's a lot of these types of patients out there. Um, so the statistic I'd like to share with that is if someone has not menstruated for six months, which really isn't that long, uh, but six months or more, it can affect their bone health in a standpoint where their bones may actually be like someone in their early 50s. So if you haven't menstruated for you know six to 12 months and you have a bone density, you may have already lost a significant amount of bone mass because you're not getting your estrogen. Um, and I think you know even 10, 15 years ago, there was a thought of, well, we'll just put you on some oral birth control and you know, yes, that, that may kind of supplement you, but really the, the better solution is let's focus on uh, fully supporting that person. Um, but I think to, to kind of wrap up on that thought, if you get a younger patient, whether it's male or female, who is showing uh, risk factors such as loss of period or in a male patient, they've had a stress fracture and it's, it seems like they shouldn't have had a stress fracture, 
Those are the types of patients you wanna get some labs on, make sure they don't have an underlying condition. If you're not sure exactly what to order, that's a great time to collaborate with a specialist or someone who has more experience, but things like getting thyroid, getting a comprehensive metabolic panel, um, looking at liver and kidney enzymes. And sometimes it's not direct, but it's giving you clues. So for example, someone who has been restricting their eating for quite a while will often have elevated liver enzymes. So then you can use that as a clue of, hey, this is someone who may have some undernutrition going on um, and let's address that with them. Um, so hopefully as we've talked about this situation of um, disordered eating or undernutrition and secondary causes and really just trying to think of osteoporosis as more preventive, I hope you've taken away a few pearls from our conversation today. Um, and, and curious from you, Chris, if there's any kind of final points that you'd like to share or kind of take home messaging for, for our audience? Yeah, I, I think a couple things. Number one is osteoporosis is preventable. Number one. I mean, uh, number two, I would say is treat the patient, not the picture, i.e. if this patient has a fracture, regardless of how great their DEXA is, they need to be worked up. Keep in mind, osteoporosis is common. One in two women over age 50 are gonna get osteoporosis if we don't do something about it from a preventative standpoint. Not to mention it's costly. We're talking about $52 billion per year. Again, we could put a huge dent in this just from a preventative standpoint. The good news is, is nurse practitioners can help identify, diagnose, and treat these patients to prevent fractures. Be proactive, not reactive. We could decrease morbidity, mortality, increase quality of life, and even longevity of life. At the end of the day, I'd like to thank Dr. Laurel for sharing her thoughts with me. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening, and together we can help keep these bones stronger and give these patients better qualities of life. So with that, I would say thank you. <laughs> Thank you to Laurel and Chris for joining us on NP Pulse. I want to personally thank you both for sharing your expertise on this very important topic. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode as valuable as I did and can apply some of what was discussed in your practice. If you want to learn more about osteoporosis while learning continuing education credit, visit the AANP CE Center at aanp.org slash CE Center and check out our activity, Breaking News, Updates in Osteoporosis Management. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. Mm -hmm.